This morning we are going to be diving into the Psalms. Now the reason why we're starting with Psalm 2, for those of you that maybe have not been here with us um, uh, over the last number of weeks, is that Psalm 1, I preached from Psalm 1 a few weeks ago when we were going through our Worship, Grow, Serve, and Pray series. And uh, we looked at Psalm um, 1 in that series. And so we started with Psalm 1 already. And so I'm going to refer back to that in just a second, just for a couple things. But uh, because we just recently preached from Psalm 1, we're going to dive right into Psalm 2 uh, this morning. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. It's a royal psalm. And maybe when we think of coronations, um, we think of the most recent one in our history. Uh, Some of you may have been alive when this actually happened. Maybe you're there at Westminster Cathedral. Probably not. I was joking around with Pastor Andy that maybe I get Pastor Andy to come up in his best Prince Charles voice which I love to hear him do, and he doesn't do very often for me, but, and, and talk about this, but I just wanted to share a little bit of information about um, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. You may have heard of this lady before. It happened in June 2nd, 1953, just a couple years before I was, no, I'm just kidding. I was born long after that. It was the first ever televised coronation In fact, 27 million people watched it. She was driven in the Golden State coach. If you've ever seen a picture of this coach, it was amazing. Like, extremely ornate. She was driven in that coach from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Cathedral. And um, I challenged the group that came last night to our worship time on Saturday night to see who could list off the names of the eight gray geldings that pulled this coach. Not one person took up that challenge. I don't know why. Think anybody could do it here? Probably not. Just out of curiosity, just so that uh, I I satisfy your curiosity, hear the names of them, because I know that you guys were really wondering about the names of these horses. Cunningham, Tovey, Noah, Tedder, Eisenhower, I always joke about the fact that President Eisenhower probably didn't appreciate that much, but anyway, Snow White, Tipperary, and McCreary. What I find interesting is that anybody would bother to pay attention to the names of the horses that pulled the the queen, but that was a significant thing, I guess. On her way to the coronation, Her Majesty wore the, the, the George IV state diadem, which was a crown, in case we don't know what diadems are, because sometimes we don't think about that much. This crown was made in 1820 and contained 100, or excuse me, 1,333 diamonds and 169 pearls. There was, what's, well, I gave you three facts. There were 47 other facts I could have given you about this particular day, which I'm not going to bore you with. Those are just three things that talked about this event in human history. It was, to many, an impressive event. For some, we may think of this event as excessive and unnecessary. Why why would she have to wear a crown that's worth that much money? She could have given that money to the poor. Or uh, why would she have to be hauled along in a golden coach? Or 
Uh, why did have so many dignitaries have to be there? And so it's so easy for us to look at that as being unnecessary maybe. But from a human perspective, we at least have to admit that this event, with all of its attachments, are majestic and regal. And that was one of the things that they were trying to emphasize, is that this was a majestic and regal event. That this was a significant thing in English history. The thing is, is that Queen Elizabeth's coronation pales in comparison to the coronation of the Son of God. And in this particular psalm, we're going to get into that this morning. Before we dive into the passage of Scripture, let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how we've been able to experience a variety of aspects of worship already this morning. We've had the privilege of worshiping you through song. We've had the privilege of worshiping you through prayer. We've had the privilege of worshiping you through hearing about one of our missionaries and their family and the work that you have called them to and the privilege that they've had to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior through the preaching of God's word, through faithful service. And we are extremely grateful to Barry and Amy and their family and their faithfulness to you and the Word of Life ministry, and we want to praise you for how you've called them to that and what you've done through that ministry. Because all praise and honor goes to you. And God, as we get into this passage of Scripture this morning, God, we pray that you would take it, that you would teach us, that you would shape us, that you would mold us into the image of your Son, that if there's somebody here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that through this passage they would see how necessary, how vital it is for them to have a personal relationship with you through Jesus. We pray that you guide and direct us this morning in Christ's name, amen. Let's jump into this particular passage of scripture. I am going to give you a few kind of technical things about the Psalms a little bit just to kind of wet our whistle when it comes to um, understanding them a little bit better because we're going to be walking through the Psalms and something that we need to know about the Psalms is that they, are, they were songs that were sung. They were oftentimes put to music. Sometimes they are poetry. Some of the Psalms are prayers and in those prayers the Psalm writers say some things that as we look at them we're going to look at them and probably take a step back and say wow I cannot believe that they're saying what they're saying in this prayer. Some of them are lamentation prayers, crying out to God because their lives are just an absolute shambles. And so there's a variety of things in the Psalms that we're going to be learning. This particular Psalm, as I said, is a coronation Psalm or a Messianic Psalm. This is a Psalm that directly connects to the coming Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus Christ. Some uh, scholars have said that these two psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, were originally put together. One of the reasons why they say that is because of the structure of the two psalms, that many psalms in the psalms start with, blessed is the one, and then ends off with a phrase very much like that. In our version of Scripture, or my version of Scripture, it says, how happy is the one, but it's the same idea, being blessed by God. 
that there's an inner contentment that comes. Psalm 1 verse 1 says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Psalm 2 verse 12 ends off with the phrase, All who take refuge in him are happy. And so many scholars will say originally these two two psalms were actually one psalm. In our version of scripture, they just happen to have been separated and called Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They'll also make note of the fact that the anointed one described in Psalm 2 is in fact the truly righteous one described in Psalm 1. Because only Jesus is righteous. Our righteousness comes from him. And so the Psalms, in these two first Psalms, emphasize the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is broken down in four stanzas in my Bible. It's probably broken down in four stanzas in your Bible. There's a reason for that. I'll explain that in just a second. But let's read Scripture together. It says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains. Let's throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son and today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction. You judges of the earth, serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice in, with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. This is Psalm 2. There's some key components to this psalm that we're going to talk about. As it's structured and, and kind of as I have the, the four main points of these psalms and the stanzas that, that work through this psalm, I've listed them in such a way that it goes A, B, B, A. Now, I didn't do this. Bible scholars have done this. I'm just stealing their stuff. But it helps us to understand that in this psalm, that's the way it's structured. In, in poetry, oftentimes the stanzas are structured in certain ways so that they go together. So, The very first stanza, which talks about the rebellious nations, could be listed as A. That's verses 1 through 3. And then the second stanza and the the third stanza go together. So the second stanza is God's rule in heaven, verses 4 through 6, which would be B. And then there's another B, because they go together, God's rule in heaven. And then the third stanza is God's decree, verses 7 through 9, and they go together. Those two psalms connect with each other. And then the last psalm, which is the rule of the Messiah on earth, verses 10 through 12, connects to the first stanza, which is the rebellious nations. And so we're going to work through this psalm, and we're going to see each of these stanzas and the significance of what is being said in each of them. 
And so we're going to be focusing on, right off the bat, the rebellious nations. But before we get there, just let me give you a few kind of more technical aspects of the Psalms so that we understand them a little bit better. We have a better understanding maybe of how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 connect. But I want us to see a few other things. You may not, under, uh, may not be aware of this. Some of you maybe do because you like Bible trivia. You know, who's the shortest man in the Bible? Nehemiah, you know, stuff like that. You guys, you know, those are the cornier bits of Bible trivia. But you might not realize that the very middle chapter in the Bible is Psalm 117. What I think is cool about this very middle chapter in the Bible, so if you went to the very central passage in the Bible, it's Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2. I want to read this to you because I don't believe for one second that it's a coincidence that the very central verse or verses in the Bible say this. Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2 say this. Praise the Lord, all nations. Glorify him, all peoples. For his faithful love to us is great. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Hallelujah. I firmly believe that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God structured it in such a way that that's the very central verses in the Bible. It's the middle of the Bible. It's the heartbeat. Psalms has multiple authors. Many of you might be aware of this. Some of you may not. King David wrote as many as 73 Psalms. Asaph wrote 12 Psalms. The sons of Korah wrote 10 Psalms. King David's son Solomon wrote two psalms. Moses wrote one psalm. Haman wrote one psalm. Ethan wrote one psalm. And 50 psalms are anonymous. But Bible scholars believe that Ezra is thought to be the author of some of them. Multiple authors over hundreds of years. Why that's significant is this. I believe that just in the Psalms we see the significance of the inspiration of the scriptures. That the Holy Spirit directed human authors to write the words of God for us. And that over hundreds of years from Moses to David there were hundreds of years, that's a hundred, hundreds of years span. From David to Ezra, hundreds of years span. And each one of these authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing these Psalms wrote consistently wrote in such a way that these psalms do not contradict each other but complement each other and talk about God Almighty and his interaction with people. One of the best things about the psalms is you're hard-pressed to go to any of the psalms and not get taught something of the character of God. And that God directed authors over hundreds of years to write these psalms and they flow together. No human beings could ever have accomplished that in their own power. So we're reading the Psalms, the inspired word of God, and there's significance to that. One last thing is that you may have noticed in your Bible that the Psalms are broken up technically into five books. We are actually in book one. Book one is Psalms 1 through 41. Book two is Psalms 42 through 72. Book three is Psalms 73 through 89. Book four is Psalms 90 through 106. And book five is Psalms 107 to 150. 
And it's just the way that they were broken up for the Hebrews, so that then when they're referring to particular Psalms, they knew exactly what section they were coming from. Let's dive into our passage of Scripture, though. The first thing that we're going to look at is stanza number one, which is the rebellious nations. And there's significance to this because by the time we get to the end of the psalm, there's an important reason for why there's an appeal at the end of the psalm in light of what we learn at the very beginning of the psalm. And the psalm writer says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The psalm writer right off the bat helps us to understand the state of human beings in reference to who God is. The psalm writer makes it abundantly clear that the peoples of the earth, humanity, not just the general public but also the leaders of the nations at our very heart and our very core are rebellious against God. Spurgeon put it this way, that this psalm demonstrates the hatred of the human nature towards the Christ of God. As human beings, we do not want God to rule over us. The psalm writer makes that abundantly clear. We see that when we go back to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, God takes the dust of the ground and forms man and breathes into him the breath of life and takes a rib from Adam and makes Eve and he puts him in a perfect garden. They're in a perfect relationship with God. They have intimate fellowship with God. Gives them one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. What do Adam and Eve do? They rebel against God and eat of the fruit. And in that decision, they stated outright that they did not want God to rule over them. And since then, that has been man's state over and over and over again. Century after century after century, mankind has been in a constant state of rebellion against God saying, we don't want you to rule over us. The psalm writer even talks about the fact that these kings, the rulers, the peoples, they plot in vain. Doesn't matter what we say to God, doesn't matter how much we say, you know what, I don't want you to have control over me, to have sovereignty over me. I don't want you to have control in my life. I don't want to have to be accountable to you. We shake our fist at God. It's in vain. It's an absolute waste of time. And yet we constantly as human beings say, let's tear off these chains. We don't want these, this God to rule over us. Before we think that maybe the psalm writer's being a little uh, overly dramatic, let me turn your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 8 with me. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. In 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 8, we see God's people, God's chosen nation, do this very thing so that we kind of understand where we find ourselves with the nation of Israel. Samuel is the last judge under the judges just before the kings come onto the scene. What has God done for the children of Israel? God has constantly, regularly, routinely delivered the children of Israel from oppression. Throughout the judges, you see that they, 
live for, for God for a little bit, then they stray from the Lord. God brings an opposing nation to come in, a group of people to oppress the children of Israel, to discipline them, and they cry out to God for deliverance. And what does God do? He raises up a judge, and the judge delivers them. Prior to that, they, st- they sat under the, the leadership of Joshua, a godly man who led them into the, chil- the, the land of promise and helped them gain victory over the land that God had promised them. Prior to that, they sat under the leadership of Moses, the man who God raised up to bring the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, the man who literally got a glimpse of the glory of God, and when he came down off the mountain, his face was so bright from the glory of God, the glimpse that he got, that the children of Israel said, hey, do you mind putting a veil on your face because it's a little too bright for us? Over and over and over again, the children of Israel have seen the majesty of God, the deliverance of God. And then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 9, and this is what happens. It says this, when they, the children of Israel, or their representatives, said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day that I brought them out of Egypt until this day. Abandoning me and worshiping other gods, listen to them but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of kings who will reign over them. The very children of God experiencing the deliverance of God many, many, many times. And what do they say? We don't want God to be our king. We want a man to be our king. We'd rather do this our way. We don't really want to do it God's way. Was God gracious to them? Yes, he he gave them some good kings, some godly kings. He also gave them some really nasty kings who hated God and oppressed the people. But they were more interested in having earthly kings rule over them than God Almighty. I think that if you studied throughout history, every nation that turned their back against God resulted in having governments that oppressed the people. If you look at the Romans, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Nazis, the communists, each of those countries, governments that turned away from God would have nothing to do with God. And oppression came. This is the state that human beings are in. As, as his human beings, we have rebelled against God. And before we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we stand as enemies of God, separated from him. And yet the psalm writer continues. You have the response of the nations. You have the attitude of the nations. We're not going to have God rule over us. In the second stanza, we see God's rule in heaven, we see how God responds to this kind of attitude, this kind of behavior. In verses four through six, it says this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. We may find that the psalm writer, in the use of his language, we may find that a little difficult to kind of grasp a little bit. We may have a little bit of a hard time taking that and accepting that because 
when we think of things like ridicule, we think of what we do when we as human beings ridicule things. I wish I could say that that's not something that I do, but I tend to make fun of things at times. I'm sure that I'm the only one in the room that does that, but when I do it, I know that when I'm doing the ridiculing, it's never right. As I take a step back and analyze what I ridicule and who I might ridicule, it's totally wrong that I'm doing that. And so we oftentimes would read something like this in scripture and we would look at it and we would look at it from our human sinful perspective and say, how can a holy God do that? But a holy God can do that because he's looking at people, his own creation, those that he literally fashioned out of the dust of the ground and breathed into them the breath of life, who, whom he... He literally allows to, to exist by the word of his power. If it weren't for God, nothing would exist. We would simply cease to exist if God were not to sustain us. And as God looks down at his, as, at his creation and evaluates their attitude, which is, I, I'm not going to have God rule over me. I want to have nothing to do with this God. It's absurd to God that his own creation would look at him with such disdain and say, I don't want God to rule over me. I, in fact, want to deny God altogether. I, I want to live as if God doesn't exist. And God sits on his throne and laughs because it's just absolutely absurd and ridiculous. He knows that we are his creation. He knows that without him, we wouldn't exist at all. That it's by his grace and his mercy and his loving kindness that we're even here today, that we even have breath in our lungs. And so for us to have that kind of attitude towards God, it's just ridiculous to him. Not only that, but in his holiness, he has to deal with that sinful attitude. And scripture makes it abundantly clear that there are times when God speaks in his anger, and he terrifies human beings. That he is judged in the past, and he will judge in the future sinful human beings. But I think he also laughs because human beings try so hard to stop the work of God in history. Either we deny what God has done, or we seek to stop what God is trying to do or is going to do. You have the children of Israel who have seen countless times over and over again God's deliverance of them. And what do they do? They turn around and say, you know what? I don't really want God to rule over me. I mean, he only brought me out of slavery after all. He's only delivered me from my enemies more times than I can count. He's only blessed me with all the things that he's blessed me with. Ah, but I'd rather not have God around. When you think about that mentality, it's ridiculous. But not only that, but nation after nation, leader after leader have tried to stop the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in history. I want to read a couple of things. Spurgeon pointed out that in late third and early first centuries, the emperor Diocletian, the great foe of Christianity, struck a medal, a medallion, which bore the inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. 
So in 245 AD to 313 AD, the emperor Diocletian was confident that he had extinguished Christianity. We're in 2021. We're in a church worshiping Jesus Christ. How do you think he did at that? And yet he had the audacity to strike a medallion saying that he had done it or that he was doing it. Diocletian extended the frontier of the empire westward into Spain where he erected two monuments proclaiming. Now I'm going to read the first one because I'll read all of his names. I'll butcher them. I'm not going to read all of his names in the second inscription because there's just too many, but we'll give the guys due. Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Hercules, Caesarus, Augusti. I think he maybe had some sort of a God complex himself maybe, giving him that many names. He lists his names off and he says, for having extended the, empire, the Roman Empire in the east and the west and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. On the other monument, he says, Diocletian, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and for having extended the worship of the gods. Diocletian utterly failed in his mission to extinguish Christianity. You know why? Because God's not going to stop people from thwarting the work that he's going to do. God sits on his throne and laughs at all of the things that human beings have tried to do to stop what God is going to accomplish. Because God is the only one that's sovereign over all things. And that God's will will not be thwarted. I read this to the elders and deacons, deaconesses at our meeting on Thursday. I wanted to read it to you this morning. It says, after the Netherlands fell to Nazi Germany in 1940, deacons in the Dutch Reformed Church rose up to care for the politically oppressed, supplying food and providing secret refuge. Realizing what was happening, the Germans decreed that the office of deacon should be eliminated. Responding to, in a general synod, on July 17, 1941, the Dutch believers resolved whoever touches the deaconate and interferes with what Christ has ordained as a task of the church. Whoever lays hands on diaconi lays hands on worship. The Germans ended up backing down because of the lion-hearted faith and faithful commitment of the Dutch Reformed deacons and members of their churches. They were not going to stop doing what God has called them to do. And God in his sovereignty preserved them and protected them. And he's the one that stopped the, the Germans from doing what they intended to do. See, God's not going to lose out to a rebellious people. God is going to have the victory no matter what. The amazing thing is that God has provided a way for us as human beings to have a personal relationship with him. He has provided an opportunity for us to be forgiven from this rebellious spirit that we have against him as human beings. It's interesting because when the children of Israel witnessed the coming of Jesus Christ. There were groups of people in Israel that honestly thought that Jesus was the Messiah described in this particular passage of Scripture. I've been working through John in my quiet time. In John chapter 6, I was just reading recently of the feeding of the 5,000. 
So Jesus fed 5,000 plus people with five loaves of, uh, uh, of uh, bread and two fish. Right, and at the end of that, this passage in John chapter six tells us that Jesus perceived that the people were gonna try to make him king. It says this, therefore when, that when Jesus realized that they were about to come and, and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew away from the mountain by himself because Jesus knew that that was not what his role was, what his purpose was, what his mission was when he came the first time. The people were looking for a Messiah that was gonna sit on a throne and come in in a white charger with an army and take over and deal with the Romans once and for all. But thankfully, that was not God's plan at that time. In fact, Jesus was gonna come in a very different way. He was not gonna look like a traditional king. I wanna read this particular passage in, in, in Luke where it describes Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem at the very beginning of the Passion Week. It was very different than what the children of Israel expected. When Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, they're waving their palm branches. They're actually quoting the Old Testament and they're saying this, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. They were expecting that Jesus was gonna come in with his armies and take over. And that's not what Jesus was doing at all. And in fact, in this very passage, in verse 41, this is Jesus' response to what he sees the children of Israel doing. As he approached it, he saw the city and he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, for days will come on you when your enemy will build barricades around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side, and they will crush you and your children among you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. God was foretelling when the Romans were gonna come into Jerusalem and they were gonna lay waste to the temple and they were gonna lay waste to the city and they were gonna disperse the children of Israel. See, they were expecting a military Messiah. They were not expecting the Messiah that was come to bring salvation for their sin. That's what Jesus' first coming looked like. The Psalms in the third stanza tells us the coronation of the Son. The writer says this, I will declare the Lord's decree. You have the Lord's decree in this stanza. It says, he, is to me, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. I will break them with an iron scepter and I will shatter them like pottery. The writer of Hebrews actually quotes this particular passage when he talks about the superiority of Jesus. When the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing that Jesus is the Son of God, the very Son of God, that he is unlike any other human being that's ever come. In Hebrews chapter one, verses one through nine, it says this, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in these days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high so that he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse five, this is where the psalm writer is quoted. He says, for which of the angels... Which, for, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and, tell, and, and let all of God's angels worship him. The fact that they are worshiping the son means that God the son is God. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. That's a quote from Psalm 104. But to the Son, he says, and this is a quote from Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter for justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. Jesus is king. Jesus is king who has rule and reign over all of creation. He also desires to have rule and reign on, in our hearts. Scripture makes it clear that Jesus, that the nations are the inheritance of Jesus, that, he, that the ends of the earth are his, his possession, and he will at some day come back as that righteous judge to judge the world. Revelation chapter 19 tells us what it's going to be like in the future when Jesus comes back. And I want you to see this because it is important that we keep in mind that the second coming of Jesus is going to be very different than the first coming of Jesus. In, Rome, in Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 it says this, Then I saw the heavens opened and there is a white horse and the rider is called its rider is called faithful and true and he judges and he makes war with justice. His eyes were like fiery flame and many crowns are on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dripped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Earlier in the book of Revelation, it tells us outright that when Jesus comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. But this significant thing to keep in mind when we understand what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back his second time is to focus in on the appeal that the psalm writer makes in this very last stanza. He says this, now, so now, kings, be wise, receive instruction. You judges of the earth, serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the king. Some of your vert translations may say, kiss the king or he will be angry. 
and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger might ignite at any, any time. All who take refuge in him are happy. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. It could come back at any time. Think about that passage in, in the very end of this section that says, for his anger may ignite at any moment. Jesus could come back at any time as the righteous judge. And if we continue to sit in our rebellion against God as people who have never trusted Christ as Savior, we're going to be under that judgment. It's going to be a terrifying, terrifying situation. And yet, our attention is drawn to the first time that Jesus came. As the anointed one of God, as the spotless lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, we are rebellious people living in a rebellious world, broken and corrupted by sin. Sin that corrupts leadership, it divides families, it contaminates creation, it separates us from God. Who will rescue us from this desperate state that we're in? Only Jesus. The passage that I read in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, after he made purification for sin. When Jesus came, he came to die on the cross of Calvary to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can put our faith in Jesus Christ. He came as a humble baby to a Jewish family, not royalty. He rode into Jerusalem, not in a golden coach, to take the throne, but on a donkey to hang on a cross. He didn't wear a fancy crown, he wore a crown of thorns. Why? To pay the penalty for our sin. So that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are no longer in a state of rebellion against God. We are children of God. We are part of the family of God. We get to spend eternity in the presence of Almighty God. We can experience the faithful love of God that he wants to demonstrate to us. Everybody here needs to hear this message of forgiveness and deliverance from sin. There may be somebody here this morning who has never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Until you do that, you are, as the first stanza describes, a people who are in open rebellion against God. Let me encourage you today to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Go from rebellion against God to peace with God. If you're a Christian, let me challenge you. If we know that Jesus is coming back and when he comes back again, he's going to be coming back as a righteous judge. If we really care about our neighbors, if we really care about our unsaved relatives, if we care about our colleagues, shouldn't we be telling them about Jesus Shouldn't we be sharing the gospel? Romans 10, 14 through 17 say this, How then can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about him? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Verse 17 says, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message of Jesus Christ.
Christian, are you sharing the message of Jesus Christ with your neighbors in light of what you know is coming? When Jesus returns a second time, may we be absolutely committed to the Great Commission, going forth to the whole world to preach the gospel and make disciples. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of Scripture. You, you don't mince words. Many times in Scripture, you just lay it out for us. And sometimes it's hard for us to bear. And yet we thank you for your honesty with us. God, I do pray that if there's anybody here this morning who does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they put their faith and trust in Christ. Right now, in their seat, they can cry out to you and confess their sin and recognize that before you, a holy God, they are a sinful person and that they trust Jesus Christ as their only means of salvation. That Jesus died on the cross for them, took their penalty for sin on himself so that they can have life with you. God, I pray that in their hearts they would now cry out to you and say, God, I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. I pray that if they do that in their seat where they are right now, that they would come and tell one of us so that we can rejoice with them that they have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and that they are in the family of God. If there's somebody here that wants to know more about that, wants to talk more about that, that they would approach one of us on staff, God. May we as Christians be actively sharing the gospel with anybody and everybody we can. In Christ's name, amen. 